Judges is one of the most violent and bloody books in the Bible. It is not a moral manual or a story about role models, but rather a tragic narrative about Israel's moral corruption and God's continued commitment to saving his people. The tragedy here lies in the overwhelming corruption and depravity of our human condition. Despite being loved and sought after by the king of all kings, Israel's cycle of rebellion remains unbroken. Israel rebels, God allows them to be conquered and oppressed. Israel cries out and repents, God sends a judge to deliver them. There would be an era of peace, but eventually Israel would sin and the cycle would start over. This is the rhythm of judges. God has called his people to be a holy people. And instead of remaining faithful to the law and showing all the other nations who God is and what he is like, they become no different from those who dishonor God. They did what was right in their own eyes. As time goes on, these judges, or rulers of the people, become more and more corrupt. When we define what is good, we hit rock bottom. The book ends with a phrase that is repeated four times. In those days, Israel had no king, and everyone did what was right in their own eyes. They have no king. Nobody to unite them and bring them out of their cycle of corruption. They need to be rescued. They need a king who can rescue them from themselves. The book of Judges not only points to King David, but points to our ultimate king. The one who can rescue us fully, Jesus. So we're picking up in our second week into the book of Judges, where we are going to be looking at Judges chapter 2. We're going to be starting mostly from verse 6 through 3.6. That's kind of the section we're looking at. If you've got a study guide, that's that's, uh, kind of where it lines up this week, if you're going to be following along those questions. A reminder, if you are part of a a group or if you are working through the study guide, Those are meant for you to be working through on your own as you're reading through Judges and reading these sections and to be working through these questions uh, and answering them and struggling with them. And then when we gather together as a group, we kind of sort through where we're landing and and talking through some of those questions that we've wrestled with already through the week as we've been reading. But I want to remind us of, of where we're sitting in the book of Judges. God calls a man named Abraham. And he says that I will make you into a great nation. I will give you so many descendants that there will be more than there are stars in the sky or sand in the seashore. And I'm going to give them this land as a promise to them. This promised land of Canaan where Abraham was at the time. Now remember the story of the Exodus where Abraham's descendants, they go down into Egypt and they're enslaved for 400 years. And during that time, they cry out to God, and God hears their cry, and He answers. He raises up a man named Moses that He sends in to help uh, bring His people out of slavery. He sends the plagues, and there's that whole story and, and crazy event showing God's might and power over the powers of Egypt. And he brings them out of Egypt, across the Red Sea, into the wilderness, and they 
head towards this promised land that God had promised their ancestor Abraham. Now, when they send spies into the promised land, 12 of them go in, 10 of them come back saying, listen, there's giants, the people are strong, their cities have walls, we can't do it. The land looks great and fertile, and we could farm it really well, but man, it's going to be a challenge. And so, kind of the majority ruled, and they ruled wrongly, and and so God says this generation's not going to be able to enter the promised land. So they wander through the desert for 40 years until that generation dies off and the next generation is given the opportunity to come into the promised land again, led by Joshua. And we read about Joshua leading the people in and conquering the land of Canaan, of, of coming in and they were, they were meant to drive out the Canaanites. And as we talked about last week, as, as kind of morally we struggle with this conquest, we realize that what they did is really not their full job. They didn't drive out the Canaanites in the way that they should. It was an incomplete conquest. And what we learned last week in Judges chapter 1 is there were consequences to them not completing their job, to there being Canaanites left in the land. See, chapter 1 of Judges was a summary of this incomplete con- the incomplete con- con- uh, Let me drink some water. <laughs> incomplete conquest. And they're confronted with the reality that their failure has long-term consequences. Where God says, I'm no longer going to drive the Canaanites out of the land in front of you, they're going to be like a thorn in your side and their gods will be a constant temptation to you, a constant snare to you. And so the Israelites have to come to terms with the fact that, that their future in this promised land isn't going to be the kind of milk and honey rainbows and roses that they expected it to be. It is going to be a harder go for them than expected. Chapter, two, chapter 1 introduces us to that. Chapter 2 is like another introduction into the book of Judges. You, you may notice as you read even in the, the first verses in uh, Judges 2, verse 6 and onward, Joshua is mentioned again. The very beginning of the book, it says, after Joshua died, the, the tribe of Judah was sent in by God. 2, 6 and onward, it talks about and the time after Joshua. It's, it's almost like restarting the book, another introduction. And it's something we see throughout Scripture. We see it in in the book of Genesis, the very beginning. The creation story in Genesis 1 that most of us are very familiar with, of of the six days of creation and the seventh day of rest, that's in in chapter 1. And then chapter 2 of Genesis is another creation story. It's just kind of from a different angle and focusing on a different thing. Judges chapter 2 is, is a different introduction to Judges. Judges 1 tells us about the military conquest after Joshua dies. Judges 2 tells us about the kind of state of, of moral and, and, and spirituality after the death of Joshua. So chapter 1 is kind of, this is the military conquest after Joshua. Chapter 2 shows us the spiritual and moral climate of Israel after the death of Joshua. Let's pick up in Judges 2, verse 7. I want to read this to you. And the Israelites served the Lord throughout the lifetime of Joshua and the leaders who outlived him. 
those who had seen all the great things the Lord had done for Israel. But if we jump down to verse 10, it says, after that generation died, another generation grew up who did not acknowledge the Lord or remember the mighty things He had done for Israel. We see here in Judges chapter 2, this incredibly stark contrast between two generations. The ones that grew up who were around Joshua and the other leaders, the ones who had witnessed what happened in Egypt. Then there was the generation in the wilderness. But when they come into the land and that generation dies off and another generation takes their place, these guys seem not to know who God is. They don't remember what God had done for Israel. They didn't acknowledge the Lord. They didn't know the mighty things He had done. Some of you read this and you're not surprised at all. Because this is something that you feel like you've seen in your own life or in a culture or even in your own family. Where you feel like for one generation there's like this, this deep devotion to God, or like we all used to go to church all together as a family, and now like the generation later, there's not that interest at all, or that devotion, or people don't seem to care. There's a, a Mennonite scholar who talked about his own kind of heritage growing up in the Mennonites, and he talks about that movement where where he says one generation firmly believes the gospel and believed it had implications for their life and how they lived politically and economically and all those kinds of things. The next generation just assumes that gospel but then identifies with all the trappings of the economics and their way of living. Then the third generation denies the gospel and their whole identity is built around the extra trappings. It is so easy for one generation to have this, this wholesale devotion, and then the next generation, it's of complete no interest. I remember hearing from a, an acquaintance who they know that I'm a pastor, and, and part of the conversation is they're surprised that their grandkids don't know the Lord's Prayer you'll notice I printed it off because I don't want to assume that everyone knows the Lord's Prayer. I grew up with it because I grew up going to church and that was, that was normal for me. But this surprise of like, how could someone not know the Lord's Prayer? And, and it wasn't a surprise to me because if, if you're not like going to church or if you're not like someone who's heavily invested in reading the Gospel of Matthew where the Lord's Prayer is, is written out. If you're not someone where that's like what's being passed down or taught to your kids or your family, if that's not part of your life, then like, I'm really not surprised that my neighbors wouldn't know the Lord's Prayer. But I think this stark difference between generations for a lot of people really takes them aback. And for Israel... This is a stark contrast because the way that God had invited them to live was a kind of life where they were regularly and meticulously passing these things down to the next generation. Let me read to you from Deuteronomy chapter 6. This is is part of the law that God gave to Moses to the people of Israel. And this this is what it said to them about teaching their children. It says, 
In the future, your children will ask you, what is the meaning of these laws, decrees, and regulations that the Lord our God has commanded us to obey? Then you must tell them, we were Pharaoh's slaves in Egypt, but the Lord brought us out of Egypt with his strong hand. The Lord did miraculous signs and wonders before our eyes, dealing terrifying blows against Egypt and Pharaoh and all his people. He brought us out of Egypt so he could give us this land he had sworn to give our ancestors. And the Lord God commanded us to obey all these decrees and to fear him so he can continue to bless us and, pers- and preserve our lives as he has done to this day. It was part of how God instructed his people. He's like, this is the script. Like, this is what you tell your kids when they're wondering, like, why do we practice Shabbat on Saturday? Like, why is it that we, we, we wear these kind of clothes and not these kind of clothes? Why is it that we have all these festivals and things like this? It was woven into their life. Like, you need to know that God freed us from slavery in Egypt, and he's inviting us into this way of life. He did this for us, and therefore we obey. And what I find so amazing about this is it's not just, well, God told us to do it. God told us to obey these commands, and therefore we do them. But they explain the why behind it. They explain we were once slaves, and God set us free. God did these, these amazing, miraculous things in Egypt where, where these plagues happened and the, He set us free from Pharaoh's army and got us through the Red Sea. Like They told the story because this is what happened. This is what God had done and that is why we do this. Israel's failure was not passing down the why to their children in the next generation once they got into the Promised Land. That maybe they were still following, you know, the Sabbath. Maybe they still had commands that they were doing, but it's pretty hard when you just tell your kids to, you know, follow these rules and do these things. But the why of we were once slaves in Egypt and God has rescued us, the weight of the why behind it isn't there. They just become empty religious rules. And when they're empty religious rules, they become a legalism that the next generation is going to want to break free from. It becomes an empty religious religiosity that doesn't seem worth following or continuing. Without the why, religious actions become meaningless sentimentalism and unsustainable rules. And I think, of, I think of many friends and people I grew up learning the Lord's Prayer with in church. I, I grew up you know, going to Sunday school with every week. I, grew, I, I went to Bible college with. And, and for many of us, we're, we're in the kind of circles and cultures of like in the church and these are the things you do and the, these are the things that you don't do. But there's 
sometimes just such an emphasis on this is what you should do without a, a firm grasp of the why behind it, and it becomes really easy to let go of the shoulds and shouldn'ts or the of living a life where you're saying, I am following Christ when, when there's no why behind it. So I think a big question for us, and, and here's... Here's how I'm reflecting on it as a parent. Is, are we teaching our children the why? I said children's. Are we teaching our children the why of what we do? It's not that we're, we're teaching them like the law of Leviticus and this is what you need to obey, but in going to church, what is the why behind? In, in, in reading the Bible, what is the why behind it? In praying at the, at the family table before a meal, what is the why behind it? In giving away our money, what is the why behind it? In, in putting restrictions on our devices or being mindful of the content that we allow to be watched, what is the why behind it? Because if it only ever becomes, well, we go to church on Sunday because that's what we do as a family. That just becomes another religious rule with no weight or why. The second thing that I think is so important as Israel failing to pass on the faith to the next generation and something that we personally as a parent can learn from is asking, do our children know our story? The Israelites had seen God work mightily. They'd seen God do things like their parents being brought out of Egypt, but them seeing the the rivers of the Jordan River parted so that they could enter the Promised Land. In seeing the walls of Jericho crumble by an army of worshipers walking around the city seven times of seeing what God was doing in their midst, did they let their kids know what they saw and what they experienced? Do our kids know our story? Do they know what happened to mom and dad at this moment in their life that made them really take Jesus seriously? Do our kids know like those big moments, maybe our, our moment where we point to of being saved or baptized or whatever, but, but also the little moments. The little moments like when I can point to our boys and say, these presents are from people in the church because they love Jesus. And they want to show you how much they love you too. And God is, is providing for us through His people. Do our kids see us being honest about our own sinfulness and brokenness? About our own failures of of acknowledging that we are a work in progress and we need the work of the Spirit in us? Do our kids hear us talk about God's grace and how we're dependent on it to live our lives? That we need what Christ did on the cross for us. Do our kids hear us repent? 
as I was reading through, studying through Judges chapter 2 this week, one of the commentators, one of his words, or some of his words kind of jumped out on the page to me where he was talking about Israel's acknowledgement of their need of God's grace in helping them to live in the promised land. And it could be very easy once you're established and once you've kind of set up this town that your people and your tribe are going to live in, and you're not really worrying about the the Canaanites or the raiders around you, and you're, you're setting up life now. It's pretty easy to say, well, look how well we've done for ourselves. Look how good I'm, we're, we're doing it. Not, re, not acknowledging God's grace that has gotten us there. And this commentator said when we lose sight of God's grace and our need for it, we lose sight of God and any sense of obligation for it. When I am regularly living my life whether I say it out loud or not, that it actually rises and falls on me and not on the grace of God. It's pretty easy to just leave God out of the equation. The dropping of the baton between generations at the beginning of Judges sets up the book of Judges for us. This one generation that grew up with Joshua and the other leaders who saw and knew what God had done and the next generation after them that no longer acknowledged the Lord or the mighty things that he had done. This starts a cycle and a pattern that we see throughout the book of Judges. We, we heard about it in the video. And uh, the Bible Project has a phenomenal overview of the book of Judges. You can find it on YouTube. Actually, a picture of their overview is in your study guide. But this is how they animate this cycle throughout the book of Judges. And you'll read it over and over and over it happens. Where when this generation didn't acknowledge the Lord and they weren't familiar with the mighty acts that he has done, let me, let me read to you what happens. It says, The Israelites then did evil in the Lord's sight and served the images of Baal. They abandoned the Lord, the God of their ancestors who brought them out of Egypt. They went after other gods, worshiping the gods of the people around them. This shows this cycle of sin beginning, of not knowing God and what he has done, and so they worship the gods around them. It goes on to say, and they angered the Lord. And they abandoned the Lord to serve Baal and the images of Ashtoreth. And this made the Lord burn with anger against Israel, so he handed them over to raiders who stole their possessions. He turned them over to their enemies all around, and they were no longer able to resist them. Every time Israel went into battle, the Lord fought against them, causing them to be defeated, just as he warned. And the people were in great distress. So God, in response to the faithlessness and the sin of his people, allowed the Canaanites that were still in the land to then conquer them, to have power over them. Instead of being driven out of the land, they were the ones that were beating the Israelites. And we read time after time, after X amount of years, 
of being under the, the foot of the Canaanites in, in whatever tribe and group of the Canaanites it might be in a particular generation. The Israelites cried out to God. Just like the people of Israel and Egypt cried out to God in their oppression. And we read in verse 16 onward, Then the Lord raised up judges to rescue the Israelites from their attackers. Yet Israel did not listen to the judges, but prostituted themselves by worshiping other gods. How quickly they turned away from the path of their ancestors who walked uh, in obedience to the Lord's command. And whenever the Lord raised up a judge over Israel, He was with that judge and rescued the people from their enemies through the judge's lifetime. For the Lord took pity on His people who were burdened by oppression and suffering. But when the judge died, the people returned to their corrupt ways, behaving worse than those who lived before them. They went after other gods, serving and worshiping them. They refused to give up their evil practices and stubborn ways. And so the cycle continues where they would sin and worship other gods. They would be oppressed by the people around them. They would cry out to God, and God would deliver them by raising up a judge or leader, and there would be a time of peace. And during that time of peace, it begins again, that they would start seeking after the gods around them. But here's the crazy thing for me as I see this cycle play over and over and over in the book of Judges. For me, the crazy thing isn't that the Israelites keep going after other gods. The sin of the Israelites actually isn't the surprising thing to me because I know my own heart, I know the corruption of the human heart by sin, that that's that's where humans go. What I find crazy throughout the book of Judges is that God continually has pity on his people, and raises up the judges. God continually, time after time, raises up someone to deliver them from the consequences of their own sin. Time and time again. And what's so interesting, and and I think this is purposely in how Judges is shaped, is for these generations that didn't remember the Exodus, that didn't remember the mighty acts of God, this cycle shows us like a mini Exodus every time. Every time when they're oppressed, it's just like back in Egypt. They cry out to God like the Israelites who were slaves in Egypt did, and God raises up a deliverer like he raised up Moses. And he sets his people free from their oppressors and brings them into peace. For every generation that didn't see the exile, God gives them a mini exile. He gives them this moment of, I'm showing you my mighty work. I'm showing you myself. I'm delivering you. And this is how I'm revealing myself to you is in my deliverance of you from your sins. God, time after time, is revealing himself to his people in their deliverance. And ultimately what this shows us is God's heart, not just of delivering his people of Israel, but but we get this glimpse of what we see clearer and clearer as the story progresses, is God's heart is not just for the deliverance of Israel, but for the entirety of his creation. And that God is revealing himself 
to us in his works of deliverance, in the Exodus, which is kind of this great salvation moment in the early Old Testament. He's revealing himself and how he delivers his people in Judges, and the ultimate picture of it is his deliverance of us in Christ. A deliverance that isn't temporary, isn't just for the generation that exists at the time, but is a deliverance that is effective for any generation who would follow after, who would trust in Christ. Whose deliverance goes far deeper than just overthrowing a foreign military oppressor, but cuts to the depth of our heart. A deliverer who did for us what we would never be able to do for ourselves. A deliverer who is restoring and renewing the entirety of of his creation from sin and evil and wants us to be part of it. This is the why for us behind what we do. We've had a great deliverer who has come and given himself for us. And so we live our lives with him. We live our lives close to him, seeking to be formed by his spirit. That's that's why I go to church. Not just because I'm a pastor and this is like where I'm supposed to be. (laughs) That wasn't necessary. (laughs) But because in gathering with God's people for worship, it is forming me and shaping me in ways where if I sleep in and stay home on a Sunday morning and do my own thing, I'm being shaped otherwise. It's why reading the scripture is helpful for me because I am being formed by the words of God rather than being bombarded by every other thing around me that I'm constantly being shaped and pulled by. Why I give my money away. Because I'm constantly being pulled to make my money my God and my own comfort and wealth rather than knowing that The why behind it is I have a deliverer who has given everything for me and is inviting me to be shaped by giving what I have away. There is a greater why behind what we do. And ultimately, it's Jesus. One last thing I want to land on uh, this afternoon is... I had some words for parents. And I want to remind us as parents that the same God who has a gracious heart towards those who cried out for him is the same God who's going to be pursuing our kids. And so we will fail in one way or another, in passing the baton, in pointing to the why of of sharing our story and showing our kids the mightiness of the God that we worship. It's good and right for us to do it, but ultimately God is the one who is going to bring about the work deep in their heart. It's not going to be me. I can create an environment where I pray that the Spirit uses it to form them and shape them. But I don't want you to come out of this afternoon bearing this 
brutal burden of saying, I, I feel like I didn't hand down the baton, and so I'm, I'm in this place of, of great condemnation and guilt and shame. Because ultimately it is God who does the mighty act of deliverance. We just get to partner with him. We just, we just get to go to work with dad to enjoy being part of the process. Christ is the great deliverer, not us. Let's pray. Jesus, you have set us free from the power of sin and death and the devil. They're no longer our rulers and oppressors. You are our king. You are the great judge that we've needed. You are the deliverer that we so humbly and graciously receive that's been given mercifully in light of our sin. Jesus, we pray for and for our kids, for the next generation, but also even for our own lives. Our own lives where we, we can so easily forget the mighty acts of God. We so forget the why. Show us your glory. Remind us of your mighty work. Help keep Christ in the forefront of our minds that we might live our lives as worship in response to that why. It's in your name we pray. Amen.